Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. This is Roisin Ingle here, standing in for our host, Cathy Sheridan, and I hope you're all having a lovely summer. We've got two great items for you today on the Women's Podcast. First of all, you're going to hear my interview with Helen Cullen, whose debut novel, The Lost Letters of William Wolfe, is causing quite a stir. It's a perfectly pitched love story with profound themes that are worn very lightly and it really is getting a bit of buzz in the current trend of what they're calling uplit, which, if you don't know, is uplifting literature to counteract all the political upheaval around us. And really at its heart, the book is a celebration of the very lost art, I think, of letter writing. And I think you're really going to enjoy hearing how Helen broke through and got her novel published and um, is now writing her second one. And after that interview, we have a piece about Lucian Day, who is the legendary textile designer being celebrated at an exhibition that's going on at the moment in the Coach House in Dublin Castle. Jennifer Ryan went along to the exhibition to discover more about Lucian Day, this woman who was so pioneering in her field. But before my interview with Helen Cullen, I just want to say best of luck to Ireland's women's hockey team who take on India today, Thursday, uh, with a place in the World Cup semi-finals on the line. And that is really historic. They're incredible women. They've made so many sacrifices and they're totally self-funded. So the best of luck to the hockey women. Aisha McFerrin, Grace O'Flanagan, Shirley McKay, Zoe Wilson, Roisin Upton, Elena Tietje, Yvonne O'Byrne, Megan Fraser, Hannah Matthews, Gillian Pinder, Chloe Watkins, Lizzie Colvin, Ali Meek, Nikki Daly, Nikki Evans, Katie Mullen and Anna O'Flanagan and also Deirdre Duke and their coach, Graham Shaw. Best of luck to all of them. That match, Ireland versus India in the women's hockey is being televised live on RTE2 tonight and it's on in London. So do support them and let's hope they get into that semi-final. And now here's Helen Cullen, the author of The Lost Letters of William Wolfe. Helen, thank you very much for joining me on the women's podcast. And this, I think yours is a really great success story for a female writer and there's been a great lot of uh, Irish writing talent coming from women lately. So it's brilliant. We just wanted to celebrate that and have you on. Um, Tell us about William Wolfe, first of all. He works in the Dead Letters Depot. That's it. And thanks so much for having me on, Roisin. It's lovely to be here talking to you today. Um, The book is set in, as you say, the Dead Letters Depot in East London, which is a place where these leisure detectives solve the mystery of all the mail that gets lost in the postal system. So all the letters and parcels that don't find their way to their ultimate destination, these leisure detectives open them all and try and solve the clues of where they were either coming from or else try and get them to their ultimate destination. And William Wolfe, the protagonist of the novel is one of these letter detectives and he starts finding letters written from a woman to her great love whom she's never met. 
So she's writing these letters almost like messages in a, in a bottle that she sends out into the universe without ever really expecting anyone to read them. But William is, is keeps uncovering these letters in the depot. And amongst, amongst all the other mysteries that he's solving, he becomes increasingly fascinated by her and ultimately feels compelled to try and find out who this mystery letter writer is. Because meanwhile, his own real life relationship isn't going very well. And so it's a bit of an escape for him. Exactly. And I think um, it was really interesting when I was writing the novel because it it sort of worked backwards for me. It started off originally inspired by a line from a John Donne poem that, um, you know, we were studying in soundings in school. I think everyone remembers, you know, plowing through soundings. And it said that more than kisses, letters mingle souls. And that really rang true with me at the time, like a bell and stayed with me for all those years. And then maybe 10 years later, when I sat down to try and do some creative writing for the first time, it was the first thing I wrote on the page. And I realized that it had been something I'd been sort of percolating in my mind ever since about this idea of the power of letters and who we are when we write letters to each other. Um, So I kind of began with this idea of wanting to explore If you fell in love with somebody you'd never met just because of the letters they'd written, would you ultimately be meeting someone who was more real and honest than if you had known them uh, physically in person? Or would they have been able to curate this very particular personality that then when you met them wouldn't uh, wouldn't be able to live up to your expectations? So I had the idea first and then I created this woman, Winter, who was um, the lady who was going to write these letters and send them out into the universe. And then I needed to find a man to receive the letters. And where would that be? You know, if someone was posting letters with no address, where would they all end up? And sort of from there, the Dead Letters Depot came into being and this lovely man, William Wolfe, who would find them. But a big question I had to ask myself then was, you know, what was it about this time in his life that made this so compelling for him? You know, why was he so open to the idea of this love affair with, um, you know, you know, with this mysterious person. And I realized that it was driven by the questions he was having in his own life about, you know, what his ideas of love were, because as you say, he was married, you know, he'd married straight out of university to his first real love. And their marriage had really hit a really rocky patch where maybe the people that they had thought they would grow into hadn't materialized. You know, there was maybe disappointment there about where their marriage had ended up and who they had become. So he was forced, forced to ask himself these questions about, you know, what love meant and um, it gave me a chance to explore this juxtaposition that I think exists a lot in the media and in arts between the romantic love that gets portrayed in films and movies, you know, where people are walking around in the rain under umbrellas in Paris. <laughs> and then, you know, the pragmatic reality of sustaining a relationship over a long period of time. Yeah. So um, I think all that sort of unfolded then in the novel. But his marriage with Claire is, is a really important part of it. Mm. Um, take me back a bit because you were a big reader as a child. Where did you grow up? And so I know I, your dad brought you to the library a lot. Yeah, I grew up in Port Leash and, um, you know, I, I just all I seem to remember when I think back to my childhood was me having a nose in a book. And I think one of the brilliant things that my mum did when I was little was pass on the books that she'd loved when she was small. So like the Little Women books and Laura Ingalls, Wilder and um you know, Black Beauty and all these kind of classic novels that she'd loved when she was little. And it was a real bonding opportunity for us, I think, you know, when we were small because she, you know, we read the books again together. But um, I and I, I really do give credit to the fact that I ultimately ended up writing a book all those years later to the fact that I spent so much time invested in reading when I 
I was a child. And I think I probably learned everything that I ultimately realized I knew about storytelling and the, you know, the power of books from, you know, from reading from such an early age. And it was absolutely amazing because during the week, actually, the lady from Portleach Library who had been working there when I was little wrote to me uh-huh. after she saw a piece in the Irish Times and said that she remembered me coming in and she always knew that when I grew up that I'd be working with books and how excited she was when she saw the book was coming out. And I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> it was so lovely. Now, did she handwrite the letter or type the letter? Oh, it was handwritten, of okay. course. Just checking yeah, in. Just letter checking. writer. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and then but you went to college. So you didn't start writing until quite a bit later. You went to college to study uh, communications. Yeah, exactly. No, I didn't. I, I, I just I didn't really think that I had it in me. I always had an instinct that I'd love to write. And obviously, because books have been such a big part of my life. Um, I think anyone who's a reader for, on, on some level would, would love to write a book one day. Um, but I think I had this idea that proper writers were sort of born and not made, you know, that they you, you often hear novelists talking about when they were little, that they were always writing short stories and, you know, had been writing compulsively their whole lives. And that was never me. I think I thought that if it was if I was able to do it, it would be kind of happening automatically. So I guess maybe that's a confidence thing or I'm not sure. But um, I think the fact that I was working in broadcasting and doing journalism stuff gave me an opportunity to kind of flex my writing muscle in a different way. That was um, always something that I really loved, you know, as part of my job. But I was really scared of trying to actually, you know, write a novel or write, write stories. And um, it was only then when I eventually decided that I would give this kind of writing workshop a go that was for a six month program. And I was kind of forced to sit down and try and do it, that I realized how much of writing comes from just creating the opportunity for it. And, you know, we had to hand up 5000 words every two weeks. And I would spend 13 days going, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. I have no idea what's going to happen next. And, uh, you know, I'm so mad to be doing this class. And then on the Sunday, I would sit down and kind of go, OK, and um, somehow manage to produce the next 5000 words. When at the beginning of that session, I would have no idea where the story was going to go. So I think that was a really valuable lesson for me to learn that, you know, the kind of for me anyway, the creativity comes when I create the space for it. I could walk around forever and never write another word if I was to wait for, you know, this great divine inspiration to strike. Mm. It happens for me when I start writing. OK. And th- tell me about that workshop. It was a Guardian workshop and I think your your partner encouraged you to, to join up to that. Yeah, definitely. It was um, really Damien, really. The book is dedicated to Damien and I actually burst into tears talking about this at the book launch, which was really (laughs) over the top and a big kind of Gwyneth Paltrow at the Oscars. You know, I totally lost it. Um, And I said that the book was dedicated to him because, you know, really, I don't know if I would have, you know, ever given myself the push. But, you know, you know, I've been saying for years and years and years that I'd love to try writing. And then when we saw this kind of program that was for it was kind of structured as a six month program that would help you get to the end of your first draft. And that felt not too intimidating because it wasn't for established writers. And it was people kind of all kind of starting in the same place together at the beginning. And so he encouraged me to just send in the application form and just, you know, take it from there. And the very first thing I wrote ended up being the first chapter of the book. How did you feel giving up that first chapter to because the way the workshop worked, you had to kind of share each other's work and then give each other sort of feedback. Um, exactly. Feedback is a bit, um, horrible. In some ways. Yeah. <laughs> How did you cope think, the first I'm, I'm time? Kind of, 
I've definitely become immune to it now. I think that was actually one of the great kind of products of doing the writing workshop because it was a really constructive and positive environment where we shared feedback in a really healthy way. Um, but that very first week, uh, it was the most, I think it's genuinely one of the most terrifying things I've ever done. And um, when it came to my turn, like everyone was with everyone, you know, they were really supportive. And um, I just, you know, got welled up and really teary in the workshop because it it felt as if I'd been waiting my whole life for someone to tell me it was OK, you mm. know, to do this thing and to write. And I remember Michelle Roberts, who was the, men the really amazing novelist, who was our mentor, could see that I was getting kind of overwhelmed, you know, listening to the feedback. And she just stopped and she said, Helen, what we're trying to tell you is you have to keep going with this. This is what you're meant to be doing. And I just burst into tears <laughs> with the relief, you know, that I was actually, you know, that it had gone OK. And it really motivated me to try and keep going, you know, having that workshop every week where people were invested in the novel and cared about how it was panning out. And even though, you know, you're not always producing your great work, it's a kind of an experiment all the time. Having people who were invested in the process and encouraging you to keep going made a massive difference to me. And tell me, after the six months, did you have your first draft? Um or how long um, more did it take? Well, I did in the sense that I'd sort of, you know, had a, had a start, a middle and an end. Um, and it was maybe 20,000 words shorter than what the ultimate book became. So I had enough to work with. And something a lot of writers have asked me or, you know, this Barring writers have asked me recently, you know, for any advice on getting to the end. And I think one of the most important things you can do is just keep going until you get to that place where you sort of have your story told, because it's so much easier to go back then and build it out and see where you need more or less and do the edit when you have, you know, the whole thing in front of you. It's that so Maeve Binchy thing. Don't get it right. Get it written. I think that's such a exactly. valuable advice for anybody doing any writing. Oh. Absolutely, because I think you could probably spend years writing your first chapter over and over and over again. And, you know, the reality of it is by the time you get to the end of the book, your feelings about it will have changed so much, you know, and you, you'll go back and revisit that beginning at the end. At, you know, at the end anyway, mm. you know, so I think until you have that sense of the whole thing, it's really difficult for you to have that perspective on, on what any of the novel needs. Mm. So I think just keeping going is the mo is absolutely the most important thing. And then you can go back and edit it, which I did for years in fits and starts, you know, just a few days here and there and in the background. Now, another thing that's always really interesting is how you got published, because you were I mean, you'd worked in RTE. I know that you'd kind of got your break by uh, as as Bono did by getting introduced to Dave Fanning and, and badgering him for work experience, which is <laughs> yeah. a great example of your tenacity. But you'd had that kind of career in RTE and you'd gone to London um, just to, to do something different. Um, and how did you, because you were unknown, you didn't have connections maybe in the literary world. You, were, you weren't one of those no. people. How did you get published? No, definitely. Well, I, and I think it's really, um, I think there's a lot of kind of myth and legend around, you know, the publishing industry. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm talking to people and it's like they feel there's some sort of secret handshake or something, you know, going hmm. on that gives you access to the publishing world and that it's, it's all kind of built on relationships and who people know. But in my case, anyway, I was completely, it was completely anonymous and I, I sent out my novel cold. So what, what they tell you to do, which I'm sure you know, is that you have to try and get a literary agent first. And then they're the one who goes on to try and sell the book to a publisher for you. And the kind of standard practice is that you send out your first three chapters and a little cover letter explaining, you know, what the book's about. And then if they're interested, they'll ask you to read the rest. And then if they're interested, it kind of goes from there. 
so that was, um, you know, exactly what I did. I, I had the book sitting at home for about 18 months before I sent it out, which now I think was, if I knew then what I know now, <laughs> I would have been a bit more productive about getting it out there. But um, I just picked 10 agents that I knew, um, you know, that I'd heard great things about or that I'd researched and read interesting things about them online and, and always had one in my mind that I really, really wanted to sign with because he represented so many authors that I loved. And then ultimately, I was just really lucky that um, that agent decided that the book was for him and he took it on. And um, but you're skipping a bit of the story there, him. though. You're skipping a bit of that story, I think. <laughs> Well, actually, I think. Well, yeah. The um, so you, well, who is this guy? Tell us the tell us the story of that. So, well, Peter Strauss, um, the man who became my agent, I really had my heart set on him. Hopefully, taking on the book, but I knew that it was you know re- pretty unlikely. You know, he has this amazing roster of um, incredible authors, and um, I'd met with a few agents who were all brilliant, and I was really honoured that any of them were prepared to represent me. But in my heart of hearts, I really wanted it to be Peter. So I rang his office and spoke to his agent and said to him that I knew it was, you know, against the odds that Peter would think about taking me on. But could he please give him my book to look at so he could just reject me and I could in good conscience go out and, you know, on into the world and sign with somebody else and not always have this kind of lingering thing about what might have been. And um, it was amazing because I hung up the phone and then an hour later I was sitting in a meeting in Google where I was working at the time and I saw the number of the agency flash up on my screen and I thought it was, you know, his assistant calling back to say that he couldn't open the attachment or whatever. And I rang back and he said, no, it wasn't me. It must have been it must have been Peter ringing you, but that seems really unlikely. <laughs> um, so, but it turns out it was. And then he read the rest of the book and I went in and had the most amazing meeting with him in the office in Notting Hill. And I'll never forget going in and he had this shelf with all the Irish authors he'd represented on. And he said, that's where you, but your book will sit, you know, one day when we get that far. Which authors had he represented? So um, from, I mean, from our, he has, a, um, from Ireland, he has like Anna and Wright and Colm Tobin, um, and he has also published like Ian, or the, he's the agent for Ian McCune and Kate Atkinson and Kazuo Shiguru and, um, you know, just amazing, amazing authors to be in the same family of. So I feel really blessed to be with him. And without I know you're a, a modest person, but what was it he said to you that he saw in your writing that made him want to take you on? Because he's quite late in his career now. He's not taking on that many people, is he? No, not he doesn't really take on that many people anymore. I think partly out of respect for the fact that the authors he has have such amazing international careers. You know, I'm sure part of it is a time thing, you know, that he is able to give everyone, you know, the time that they need. Um, but it was really amazing, actually, because he said to me that when he read the book, it had um, gave him the same feeling he'd had when he bought a book by another Irish writer back in the 90s. Um, and it was an author called Niall Williams, who had written uh, Four Letters of Love, which was this huge international bestseller. And at the time, to my shame, I hadn't read Niall's book and I wasn't familiar with his work. But I was obviously, you know, really fascinated by this, you know, that it had made him think of him. And Peter had published that when he was an editor in Picador. And he said that something about it just gave him the same feeling. And um, on instinct, he knew that it was you know, the book for him. And then ultimately when um, I read Niall's book, it was amazing because I was like, oh my God, it's like me, but so much better. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I could totally see, you know, why it had made him think of it. But, you know, Niall is just, you know, amazing. And I actually subsequently, which makes me sound like a bit of a stalker probably, but went to um, a workshop Niall did in Kiltumper in County Clare, where he runs uh, working writing workshops twice a year. 
um, because I was just so in love with his writing after I read the book. And it was one of the most amazing things I've ever done. I, I left, you know, rev- totally rejuvenated as a writer and totally and full of inspiration for the next book. So it was an amazing coincidence that Peter had mentioned him and has he has since gone on to play a really important part in my writing career. So it's a really nice story. So you got um, Peter as an agent, but then I suppose he had to go out and sell the book. Was that and that was pretty quick that it happened, was it? Yeah. um, So Peter gave me a few notes. Um, He always has a light touch, I think, and had as an editor as well. But he gave me a few notes of things just to work on um, over Christmas. I signed them just before Christmas. And then he sent it out um, in February and Penguin did a preempt which means that they put in an offer quite quickly to kind of take it off the table. Um, And then it's one of those things where you get 24 hours to accept it or decline it. But, you know, you don't really get the chance to go out to, you know, other publishers and say, do you want to, you know, bid against it? It's kind of a take it or leave it moment. Um, So Penguin put in that preempt kind of straight away and we went in to meet them in the offices. And it was, you know, it was amazing. I went in and they had made like the classic Penguin cover, you know, with my <laughs> the orange and white one with the name of the book and my, and my name on it. So it was pretty much a done deal then. <laughs> and this was this a substantial preempt? Can you talk figures or zeros or numbers? Because there's quite a lot of buzz about your book around the publishing industry. Well, I think um, in terms of the actual deal, what was amazing for me, I mean, it wasn't a life changing amount in the sense of, you know, oh, we've won the lotto and are, you know, going off to buy a yacht or anything. (laughs) But it definitely bought me enough time to take some time off work and write the second book, which is what I'd really hoped for. Um, So I think in that sense, it was really amazing because it's really given me that freedom. I mean, the first book took me years and years to write because I was working full time and always trying to squeeze out an hour here or there to try and work on it. So it's been amazing to have that freedom to focus totally on the writing for the first time. And um, I've gotten to the end of the first draft of the second book now, which is brilliant considering how long it took me to do that the first time. (laughs) And how long did it take you this time? So I guess um, maybe about six or seven months Okay. Yeah, which That's which pretty feels, amazing. I mean, there's a lot more still to go. Okay, and I haven't given it to my to Peter or my agent or my editor yet. So I'm sure when they read <laughs> it, you know, I'll I'll be like off on a whole other big long journey again. But I I think it felt like a major landmark just to kind of get that first draft down and have something to work with. So is it very moment, different um, to the to the Willie Wolf book? Your next well, one. Well, it's a totally different story. Um, it's it's about this man called Martag Moon who lives off the west coast of Ireland. And um, he's a potter and it's uh, a book that focuses on his family and um, how a family copes with a bereavement over a long period of time. And it's it's, it's much more uplifting than it sounds, but um, it's... It's a totally different story, but the one part, Michelle has my mentor who entered me through the first book, read it. And she said that even though it was a completely different story, she would instantly have known that I'd written it, you know, that it still sounded like me. So I guess that that in that sense, there's that connection. Yeah. And you have, you know, whereas a writer, you know, you have kind of a voice that comes through, but the story is totally different. And you you talked about it being uplifting uh, because a lot of people are saying the Lost Letters of William Wolfe, which is your book, um, is part of this kind of genre, which is a kind of clunkily named uplit which is mm-hmm. kind of books that are kind of inspiring and uplifting and one of the examples of it is Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine by Gail Honeyman which I just read on my holidays and oh my god I loved it so much um, as I did your book and so is it are you did you were you conscious of that when you were writing William Wolf that you were part of this kind no, of no I mean 
I guess one of the interesting things about, um, you know, the way it happened with the book being published was that I suppose like when I was writing it, I never thought it would be published. And it's been really funny now talking about things retrospectively and explaining choices I made, because, you know, really, if I'd known at the time that it would get published, I probably would have you know, really, really, you know, really, really considered at the time, like why things happened the way they did. But because I was writing in this sort of safety of thinking no one would ever read it, you're just kind of going by instinct all the time and not thinking ever about how it might be received. Um, and I guess the the kind of this uplish genre is just sort of an, a kind of a trendy term, I guess, that has come out in the last few months that coincides with when the book was released. But it was obviously written years and years before that. But I think maybe as a society, because there's so much you know, kind of scary stuff happening in the world. People need something that gives them a bit of hope. So I can see why this trend for books that leave people feeling a bit more optimistic or a bit more in love with the world would have taken off at this time. But I guess what one of the amazing things about the public industry is that because it moves so slowly, no one can ever predict what's going to be going on in the world at the time when books come out. So it's just sort of things that bubble up in the zeitgeist, I guess. Mm. I mentioned at the beginning there that um, there's been a wave of really interesting and uh, successful and unique kind of uh, writing from Irish women. If you think about Louise O'Neill and you think about Sally Rooney and Sarah Maria Griffin and yourself. And this, it's, it's a really exciting time in, in Irish literature for women, I think. Absolutely. And I think that there's so much credit has to be given to Anne Enright for the work she did as the laureate um, for Irish fiction, for, you know, to really champion the, the cause of Irish women writers and to really draw attention to, you know, the kind of mechanics of the industry. You know, Anne's spoken a lot about like how many times women get reviewed in the newspapers or, you know, how many um you know, women get nominated for different literary prizes. And she's really shone a spotlight on that, I think, and created an opportunity for women writers to really get some attention. And I think we owe her an awful lot, you know, for the doors that she's broken down for us coming in her wake. And I think we couldn't have had a better laureate for fiction and she's done so much good work for us. Uh, and we should also mention, I suppose, Sinead Gleeson, who's done those anthologies of women's writing and really championed Absolutely. a lot of them as well. And I mean, I've said about Sinead before, she's like, you know, a lighthouse, like a beacon <laughs> for women writers all over the country because she tirelessly champions um, other women's work. And, you know, her anthology, I'm looking, it's actually right in front of me on the shelf <laughs> when I'm talking to you. You know, she's done so much to support uh, women writers around the country and to give them a platform. And not only, you know, writers that are coming through now, but writers of the past who maybe didn't get the attention that they deserve the first time around. And um, I think she's she's like a, like an army of women in one woman, you know, campaigning for everyone. She's just amazing. Brilliant. Well, listen, it's been lovely talking to you and I'm dying to read your next one, which is called, have you got a name for it yet? Uh, not yet, actually. I have a few ideas, but we haven't settled on anything. Okay. So, uh, But I'll keep you posted. Yeah, <laughs> too. And listen, the best of luck with it all. It's been really good talking to you. And uh, yeah, good luck with the rest of your writing career. I don't think you're going back to Google. Um, well, not in the short term anyway. <laughs> I guess we have to see how it goes. But um, I, I mean, I totally... I'm loving writing every day and it will be a total heartbreak to stop now. So I'm just hoping I can, you know, keep going for as long as I can. <laughs> Brilliant. OK, Helen Cullen, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Roisin. Lovely to talk to you. Bye bye. That was Helen Cullen there and thanks to her for coming on. It's a really great book and you should all go out and read it. Now, 
Lucien Day was one of the most influential British textile designers of the 1950s and 1960s. She drew on inspiration from other arts to develop a new style of abstract pattern making in post-war British textiles. It was known as contemporary design and she was also active in other fields such as wallpapers, ceramics and carpets. Jennifer Ryan went along to a new exhibition celebrating her legacy in the Coach House in Dublin Castle to speak to two of the women responsible for bringing that exhibition to Ireland and they are Emma Hunt and Mary Mullen and here's Jennifer on Lucian Day. I never wanted to be a painter because painting in a way I felt was for oneself. I suppose even then I was a very practical person and I, if I did anything in that line I wanted it to be useful. That was the voice of one of Britain's foremost textile designers, Lucien Day. Born in London in 1917, her designs, often influenced by the European abstract painting of Kandinsky, Miro and Clay, could be found in every living room in Britain and the US throughout the middle of the last century. Day's designs are being celebrated in a new exhibition, Lucien Day Living Design, at the Coach House in Dublin Castle. I went along for a guided tour with two of the women responsible for bringing it here. My name's Emma Hunt and I'm a design historian and I work at the Arts University of Bournemouth and I'm the co-curator of this exhibition. My name is Mary Mullen and I'm a trustee of the Robin and Lucian Day Foundation and I'm an honorary fellow of the Arts University in Bournemouth. It was while studying at the Royal College of Art in London that Lucian Day met her husband, the furniture designer Robin Day. They worked alongside each other, but their careers were always distinct. The photographs and fabrics on show at Dublin Castle show her famous pattern Calyx, which came about when Robin asked her to make a fabric for his contemporary room design for the Festival of Britain in 1951. Calyx is a word for the outer um, part of a flower. It's also Latin for cup. So what you can see here are sort of upturned cups. She was also very influenced by contemporary modern art, so Alexander Calder and some of those sorts of artists. So what you've got here is a beautiful drawing and very, very contemporary and fresh imagery. The one to the left here, which has a browny tone with light, um, light blue colours and touches of yellow against little black drops became the fabric of the of the decade. It inspired so many people. And you have to remember, this was a completely fresh, vibrant new design that after the war years, in the post-war gloom, this really lit up everybody's homes, it lit up everybody's ideas. It was designed for Heels, the manufacturer, who said it wouldn't sell. Um, but in fact, because it, the Festival of Britain was such a... It was called the tonic to the nation. It was such a wonderful celebration and exhibition post-war that actually it sold, and it sold incredibly well. And it was from that moment on that launched Lucian's career. So what did Calix and the success of the Festival of Britain mean for Lucian's work? Calix became, uh, after heels, uh, produced it and the success at the Festival of Britain and he was having said it wouldn't sell a yard and it'd never be a commercial success 
But the real success came is won the gold medal at the Milan Triennale in 51, and in 1952 it won the American Decorators Award, and it went on to sell 200 to 200 decorators throughout the United States, and that launched her as an international designer, and her career then not only for textiles, but for ceramics, wallpapers, furnishings, um, so that really was the introduction to that. It opened a wider world to her, an international world. In Day's obituary, in the Guardian newspaper in February 2010, Fiona McCarthy writes that Lucien was too shy to find public roles easy but she saw the importance of female visibility in a largely male-dominated profession. Emma and Mary say she and her husband Robin were pioneers of radical change in design in the post-war years. She had decided quite early on in her career that actually although she was going to be an industrial designer and do commercial work, she wanted control of that. So she was probably one of the first to say, I want my name on the selvage, so you see her name on the selvage of all the fabrics, and she was in complete control. She was not going to be an in-house designer. So the design profession, I think, completely changed with Robin and Lucien Day. The design profession up until then, you would go and be an in-house designer, and so your work would be anonymous. She wanted to actually make sure that her work wasn't anonymous and that she would be in control of that production. So her name, as with Robin as well, they were in control of that process. Probably, and we'll see when we look at the photographs, just how much they controlled their image. So they became, if you like, the first designer couple or celebrity designers that you probably see a lot more today. And they worked to very high uh, principles. They believed and practised ethical, sustainable design before the terms were in general use and they put it into practice before anybody else did. Lucien said, um, I want what I do to be useful to people. And Robin said in 99, I think it was, that uh, I want my uh, designs should be, be useful, but they should be long-lasting, they should be made with respect for the limited resources of the planet, they should be sustainable. Mary knew Lucien personally. She worked with her, became friends, and was asked by her daughter, Paula Day, to be involved in the Robin and Lucien Day Foundation. So what was she like? She was a highly dignified woman, very kind and very encouraging to young designers. I mean... Um, she was a sort of icon when I went to London, but then I ended up working with her. Um, I served on a, the Misha Black Awards Committee, which was for distinguished services to design education. And so Lucian worked to give back to that. She was our second woman who was master of the faculty of the Royal Designers for Industry, which is part of the RSA in London, and she gave back hugely to the profession of the industry. She encouraged young people always. Um, and right up into her 90s. For more than two decades, Day designed over 70 furnishing fabrics for heels. She also designed ceramics, wallpaper, carpets, tea towels and dress fabrics. But the changing fashions of the 1970s left her somewhat disheartened and as a result, her work changed. The world was changing quite a lot and we're beginning to see, particularly in the 70s, sort of reproductions and Laura Ashley and those sorts of, you know, that sort of... Victorian floral era, there was a revival of the floppy hats and the long dresses and the Laura Ashley prints, it was quite 
contrast to what... And so she really thought she had done her bit for commercial design. And in a way, this is um, slightly in conflict with her earlier principles around you know, good design for everyone. Mm-hmm. But she went back to... And she created this technique which she called silk mosaic. But if you think of them as tiny, tiny little... Um, yeah, tiny, tiny, almost a centimetre or a couple of centimetres long, little bits of silk, which are then stitched together, stitched together by her cousin... Um, Karen, Karen Conradi, Con- Conradi mm-hmm. to make these sort of patchworks but she didn't pan stitched tiny bits of silk but what you can see she's still using a designery um, framework so you've got this grid behind just like she would have designed the other fabrics a grid which will allow the repeat but she's allowing herself a bit more freedom with all of these the curators of Lucian Day Living Design which runs at the Coach House in Dublin Castle until September 15th say the photographs in the exhibition were chosen to reveal how living design developed from the artwork to the showroom and onto the home. Mary says her friend would be happy to be celebrated. But more than that, she would hope to inspire a new generation of designers. I think she'd be extraordinarily surprised in some way it used to be here, but in other ways feel that this was right, things should move on, and she would hope, I think, that a new audience, particularly young Irish designers, would come away and believe that they too could do things like this in their own way, in their own time, and create their own legacy for the future. And I would hope that lots of students will come in here and, and younger people, because when the exhibition was in Bournemouth in uh, Professor Hunt's gallery at the Arts University, I sat on the floor with children who were born after Lucien died, and they were sketching their desi- her designs. And I said to them, what, what do you like about these? Oh, I love the flowers and I love the pieces. And they were picking out the detail and they were designing them. And I would hope that children here in Dublin would do exactly the same. What a fascinating woman she was and that exhibition continues at the Coach House in Dublin Castle until September 15th so plenty of time to get along and see her wonderful work. That's all we have time for. Thanks very much to Helen Cullen and to everyone involved in the Lucian Day exhibition. The podcast is produced by myself, Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan who brought us that lovely package on Lucian Day. Remember, you can subscribe to us on all the usual podcast apps, including iTunes. And you can also go along to iTunes and do a review of us and tell all your friends that this is the podcast that they should be listening to. We'll be back next week with another episode. But until then, I'm Roisin Ingle. Thanks very much for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.